This morning in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to 1 Timothy 3 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1,363. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also read an article from the Belgic Confession, which we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God. Uh, this morning, we come to Article 30 of the Belgic Confession, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 187. Article 30 deals with the government of the church, and so we've chosen 1 Timothy 3 as our scripture reading this morning. Hear now together the Word of God. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, thus far, our reading this morning from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 30 of our Belgic Confession, and again, that's entitled The Government of the Church, and it states, we believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons, along with the pastors, to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church, when such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul 
gave to Timothy. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would suppose that you have had a similar experience to what I have had, uh, that of observing that, generally speaking, there are two different kinds of homes. Uh, Maybe you are invited over uh, for a dinner evening uh, into someone's home. Uh, There are those homes that upon entrance and upon spending an evening in the presence, you leave and you say to yourself or maybe to your spouse, well, that's, that's a well-ordered home. You can, you can see the relationships that are in that home between husband and wife are relationships of love and of charity. You can see that uh, the children, uh, by and large, respect the parents, and the parents love the children. Uh, maybe even you might observe uh, the general decor of the home, uh, the tidiness of the home, the organization of the home, and you say, that home seems to be in order. And then, although there are certainly legitimate reasons, there are other times that you enter a home, and almost immediately you know something is wrong. Perhaps you pick up uh, the nature of the interpersonal relationships within that home. You pick up even by the words that are spoken or not spoken perhaps by the cold stares that are given between the inhabitants of that home, you pick up that there is conflict in that home, that there is an unhealthy tension in that home. And perhaps you observe the way that parents speak to children, or maybe that children speak to parents, and that just affirms your initial perception that there is tension in the home. And now we have to be careful because Uh, Those of us who are Dutch, perhaps we overemphasize the tidiness of the home, but maybe you look around and you see that disorder characterizes the home. Now, an orderly home is, generally speaking, more conducive to the health of the inhabitants of the home, the physical health, the emotional health, the psychological health. That's why a broken home, that's why a home in which there is strife is so sad to observe because of the impact that that has upon the members of that home. And now you'll notice in 1 Timothy 3 that the church of God, that is the local congregation, is referenced to as the house of God. See, the church is not the building, it's not the physical materials of bricks and of mortar, of pews, not even of songbooks, but the church of God is the house of God where God gathers together His people, redeemed by His grace, and God would have His house governed well. I fear that there is not a proper appreciation, just generally speaking, not pointing to any particular congregation, not pointing to this particular congregation, but I fear that the whole understanding of church government is lacking in our day. But this is not just a side issue. The Lord God desires. We would go even further. The Lord God commands 
that his house be a well-ordered house. And to that end, we want to consider uh, the text and also the summary of the Word of God before us this morning. Underneath this theme, our belief concerning the government of the church. We'll do so, first of all, noticing the basics of the government, and then secondly, the offices for the government, and then thirdly, the goal of the government. So our belief, based of course upon the Word of God, in all things we are bound to the Word of God. Our belief concerning the government of the church, the basics, the offices, and the goal of the government. When we speak of church government uh, or church polity, we refer to the organization uh, of a local congregation and also then how that local congregation is overseen. Uh, Now, I just want to refer you back to the Belgic Confession, Article 30, and it states there in its opening line and phrase, we believe that this true church, that is the gathering of the people of God, uh, those who are marked by faith and repentance towards God, towards Jesus Christ, we believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order. And, And that word ought caught my attention this week, and I I reference back to older translations of the Belgic Confession. And the older translation that we had, for example, in the blue Psalter hymnal had must be governed. And I thought to myself, well, why the change? And I have to confess, I'm not sure the change, but then I went back and I thought, well, what exactly does the word ought mean? You know, there are many things that I, I think people ought to do. For example, uh, last evening, uh, one of my children, I'll leave her unnamed to avoid her some embarrassment, she said to me that she thought that I should wash her car. I said to her, well, I think you ought to have washed your car. Now that ought, as I used it, was just merely a parental suggestion. But this church government is not merely a suggestion. The word ought actually indicates a moral obligation. A moral obligation based upon the Word of God and based upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us to properly understand church government, we must first of all understand that these things are not just suggestions, but that these things the principles that we will be looking at in regards to church government are commands that are given by the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself, and commands then that we ought to take seriously and engage with with a certain measure of solemnity. Christ would have his church, and we remind ourselves that this is the church of which he is the head, having purchased the church with his own blood, Christ would have his church governed in a certain way. Christ, of course, is the head of the church. That's the first principle of church government. We read in Ephesians 5, verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. It's outside the scope of our attention and our time this morning, but there are various forms of church government 
Uh, you can think of the, the papacy. Uh, you can think of a hierarchy. You can think of various structures in which persons are set up as the head of the church. Uh, all of them must be rejected on the basis of the authority of Scripture. And let us once and for all and forever settle in our minds that Christ is the head of the church. And let us remind ourselves that Christ and Christ alone is the head of this church. That when we think of Covenant Reformed Church, we automatically think Christ is the head. He has all authority. And His will is ultimately the only will that matters. And by extension, of course, that goes out to our beloved Federation of Churches. Christ is the head of the particular congregations that have federated together to form the Federation of the United Reformed Churches. And wherever a true and faithful church finds itself expressed, Christ is the head of that church. He alone gives that church existence by the way of his redemptive sacrifice. Uh, the second basic principle truth that we would emphasize this morning is that the government of the church is spiritual in nature. Now, of course, Christ rules over absolutely everything. Uh, but he has a particular way of governing his church, and it is not through physical means. It is not through military force, but rather through the spiritual means uh, that indeed are powerful. Uh, let us not think that spiritual means are somehow ineffectual. No, indeed, spiritual means are powerful and are effectual. We pass from death to life. Regeneration takes place underneath the spiritual ministry of the Word as the Holy Spirit blesses that Word. Much more can be accomplished uh, by the use of the Word of God within the government of the church than could ever be accomplished by physical force. And so we are reminded uh, that we use spiritual means, especially uh, the ministry of the Word and of the sacraments, because God is pleased to use His Word to bring life to the church. Initially, by the way, again, as we just referenced, the new birth or regeneration, but also continually. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. And where do we find the words of God? In none other than within our canonical books, the 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. And so you might say on the one hand, we emphasize Christ is the head of the church, the only head of the church. And that he exercises his rule, his governing within the church by his word, which we find within the 66 books of Holy Scripture. And so as we, as we emphasize Christ as the head of the church, we also ought to appreciate and emphasize the centrality of the word of God for the life of the church. So everything that we do as a congregation ought to be word-centered, word-focused. He's in glory now, but I well remember one of my former elders will leave the the, the name of the town in which he grew up, 
uh, in Iowa unnamed, but he would go back there after many, many years. After moving away, he would go back there. And because of family obligations, he would worship in the church in which he was born and raised, catechized and professed his faith. And I well remember him coming back uh, to West Michigan, and again, he was an elder in my former congregation, uh, and he looked at me, uh, and almost with tears in his eyes, he said, we went, we went to the church service, and the Bible was never opened. A scripture passage was never read. There was no text for what the person behind the pulpit pretended to be a sermon. By God's grace, may that never happen here. And may the placement of that Bible be more than just mere symbolism. May the Word of God always be central to everything that we do. And passing, this is why our church order emphasizes that all meetings, whether they be of consistory or of the diaconate or whether they be of the council or broader assemblies, the, the classes or the synod, they open with the Word of God and prayer. Spiritual means to accomplish spiritual ends. A well-ordered local church depends upon the basics of church government including that Christ is the head of the church and that his government is spiritual in nature. Well, what then of the offices for the government? Uh, these offices, again, we believe are revealed within Scripture uh, and are three. Now, historically, there has been debate between three and four. Uh, we don't enter into the analysis of that historical debate. Uh, we suffice to say that we believe that there are three offices, now we're not speaking about the office of Christian believer, but that there are three unique offices within the church. Now, of course, there were extraordinary offices in the New Testament era, in the apostolic era, the office of apostle, the office of evangelist, the office of prophet. Uh, but in the church, as we find it expressed in our day, we believe, again, on the authority of Scripture, especially in light of passages such as Philippians 1 verse 1, where we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. So notice, bishops, deacons, bishops just simply means overseers, deacons, those who serve, those who minister, and then you take a passage such as 1 Timothy 5.17, which says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in the doctrine. So you might say 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 clarifies that there is a distinction within the bishops. There are bishops who have a more particular focus upon the oversight of the congregation, and then there are bishops who have a more particular focus upon the preaching and the teaching. This in addition to deacons, and that's why we come up with, or we recognize, we don't come up with it, we recognize these three offices, minister of the word and sacrament, or as our Belgian confession calls it, pastors, and then elders, and then also deacons. And I just want to very briefly, but also I believe 
importantly, acknowledge that we are convinced, and I pray that we will always be convinced, of the authority of Scripture also in regards to the gender of the persons who fill these offices. We believe that these three offices are to be filled only by men. Now, that, that is not simply some type of male chauvinistic teaching. We're bound to Scripture. It's not up to us to decide whom can fill these offices. It's up to Christ, and we believe that Christ has very clearly revealed within His Word, with the examples that are given, especially in the New Testament, with the apostles, uh, but also in the clear teaching, for example, uh, that we find in 1 Timothy 3, the husband of one wife. Now, I, I fully understand that in our age and also in churches, more broadly speaking, there will be all sorts of explanations given that seek to explain this requirement away. With humility, but also with conviction, we cannot go along with their explanations. We are bound to Scripture, that the office bearer must be the husband of one wife. Now, we do want to also qualify that this does not negate those men who are not married. The Apostle Paul himself, although perhaps he had been previously married, the Apostle Paul himself, during his time as an apostle, was an unmarried man. But the qualification is that men only ought to serve in office. But then allow me to say with pastoral love, and perhaps I risk getting myself in a bit of trouble, but I can't help it. That means that us men need to be willing to serve. I well remember also an article written probably 30, if not 40 years ago in the Outlook by the late Reverend Arthur Bestemann, who if you met him, you know that he had a wonderful gift of speaking very powerfully and pointedly and yet also pastorally. And he wrote an article and he said at that time he was in a former denomination, left unnamed, he said, the reason that we are having more and more women in office is because the men are not willing to serve. He was not a prophet, but his prediction came true. And I guarantee you, if men will not serve, women will. And so it's one thing for us to say, well, we believe in male headship. Well, we believe that only men ought to fill the offices of the church. Well, men, then we need to prove it. We need to prove that we believe that. Notice, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's a good work. A difficult work, yes. 
a trying work? Absolutely. That's why we need, spiritually speaking, manly men. Not, not like the world speaks about manly men. But we need men who are, by God's grace, up for the challenge, up for the task, up for the duty, up for the responsibility. To be an office bearer, it will demand something of you. You might even say it will demand much of you. But if a man desires the office of bishop, the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so we distinguish between ministers of the Word. I just want to briefly go through this, that their primary task is that of preaching the Word. Included in preaching is teaching. Preaching must always be teaching, but preaching is more than teaching. So the ministers of the Word and the sacrament are those ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ who stand before men, women, and children and who proclaim the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who proclaim that the kingdom of God has come, and then who explain in certain amounts of detail what that exactly means, but then also call persons to respond to the coming of that kingdom by repentance and faith. And, and, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, there must be a, a holy fire in the belly, as the older uh, forefathers of the faith used to say within the minister. So, so that there is this earnest proclamation that the ministers of the Word recognize uh, that in some manner they stand uh, on the line between time and eternity, and they proclaim to everyone who will hear that the kingdom of God has come in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, therefore, we are all commanded to repent and to believe in order to obtain salvation. See, preaching is not to be just some random explanation of interesting facts derived from a text of Scripture. Preaching has to have heart, has to have soul. Not only are there then the officers of the minister of the word or pastor, there is the elder. Growing out of the Old Testament elders and Exodus 18, underneath the advice of Jethro, the elders are given the primary task of oversight, oversight of the congregation's doctrine and life. Uh, you might think, of course, of shepherds, and they are classified as shepherds, shepherd the flock of God. And I talk with you out of interest, some of you who are engaged in the exercise of animal husbandry, and you know your cattle or your livestock. You know rates of gain, you know nutrients, you know digestive health, you know everything there is to know. And that's a fitting analogy for the work of the elder within the congregation, not to speak of us as livestock. But the elder is to shepherd the flock of God. The elder is to know the spiritual needs of the congregation, the spiritual levels of the congregation, the spiritual trials and struggles. This is an, an active, engaged work. It's much, much, much more than just one night a month. I mean, what would you think of the farmer who only checked his herd once a month? 
No, this is a, a walking amongst the flock, a, a rubbing shoulders with the flock, uh, the, the gentle pastoral uh, inquiry about how the flock is doing, but also the proactive recognition of these are the needs of the congregation, and also a defensive protection of the enemies uh, of the congregation. So the elder, they, he must know who the enemies are, Satan's temptations, false doctrine, immorality. And notice that this knowledge is not just to be so that they can sit at home and say, oh yeah, these are the enemies, but that they might then prevent those enemies uh, from encroaching within uh, the life of the congregation. And so by this means, our Belgian confession says, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check. And so one of the Again, heavy but necessary responsibilities of the elders is the faithful exercise of Christian discipline so that evil men might be held in check. Because when evil men are not held in check, first and foremost, when evil men are allowed to exist within a congregation, it dishonors God. And it also has a negative impact upon the congregation. Just like you wouldn't let some predator uh, into the fold of the livestock, so much more. A predator must be checked by the spiritual means of faithful Christian discipline. And then you'll notice also the office of deacon. Uh, the word deacon, and that's why at times it is used of women, you think of Phoebe, the word deacon, its root word just simply means to serve. And, and of course, women serve in the church, and we are thankful. They have unique gifts, they have unique talents, they have unique opportunities. We do not Diminish those unique gifts, talents, and opportunities. But as an official office, we note that in the New Testament, and it's not just culturally conditioned, men were chosen to the office of deacon. Those whom, according to Acts 6, were to serve in a very particular way, administering compassion through tangible, financial, benevolent gifts to those who are in need. And now much, much more could be said about this, but we just want to mention the criteria for these offices before we enter then in our third point. And we are conscious that, once again, time flees away. The criteria, they are listed in 1 Timothy 3. They are listed there as the revelation of the will of Christ. So who should be an office bearer? That question must always first be referenced in light of 1 Timothy 3. Not anything of our own imagination. Not anything of our own criteria. But if we are those who profess to believe in the authority of the Word of God, these criteria 
must be the first that we go to when we ask ourselves the question, who is to serve as an office bearer? And you might summarize those criteria as a man of a certain faithful, mature, consistent godliness. Not a perfection, but a faithful, mature, consistent godliness in personal life, in domestic life, and also in public life. And a word to the current office bearers, myself included, take watch unto yourself. Satan loves nothing more than to cause an office bearer to fall into sin. Because nothing does more to dishonor the church of Jesus Christ than the serious moral failures of his officers. The world laughs. Christians are negatively impacted. Spiritual growth uh, is stopped. So if by God's providence you find yourself in the position of being an office bearer, take watch unto yourselves. And office bearers take watch unto one another, seeking to protect one another. And so uh, we then transition into our third point, the goal of the government. What is the goal? What is the purpose? And and I, I think that this is so vital for us to understand what is the goal? What is the purpose? What are we aiming at? in all of this, in the government of the church. Uh, Well, our Belgian confession is helpful as it summarizes the teaching of the Word of God, and we condense it down to a two-part goal. The first goal of the proper biblical government of the church is the preservation of true religion. By the exercise and by the oversight of the proclamation of the word of God, true religion, both in its objective truth and in its subjective response, is preserved. There is always this battle against apostasy. To apostatize means to fall away, to fall away from the truth of true religion, to fall away from orthodoxy, true doctrine, to fall away from orthopraxy. There is, you might say, by sin, a natural inclination to fall away. Just like if you take a, a home, there's, there's a natural tendency for the home to become unkept. And, and not, not to, again, be barbaric uh, nor sexist, but maybe the women of the congregation especially notice this. If you don't pick a house up after a week, if you just stand back and say, I'm just going to let things go, well, they'll go all right. And if you have a number of children in the home, they'll go very quickly. It's amazing to me uh, how unkept and dirty things can get if you don't keep it up. And so likewise, within a Christian congregation, there is this inclination towards falling away from a right understanding of doctrine and falling away from uh, a right practice uh, of basic Christian principles. Uh, That's why the old saying, right, concerning Sabbath observance. Twicers become oncers and oncers become nuncers. And and so the 
the first generation, very, very, very faithful in Sabbath observance, morning and evening. And the second generation, well, faithful in the morning. I was talking with a man just this week from the area, and their congregation voted just to quit the evening service. First of all, why would you put that to a vote? Secondly, how sad. And then I thought, well, imagine the, the former generations. If they were to hear that. You did what? I think, I'm not sure exactly when, and I'm not sure if they do two-a-days, but back in my day, I never played football, but I watched the other guys practice football. They had two-a-days practice. They'd practice in the morning. They'd practice in the evening. <laughs> you had to go to both if you were going to be on the team. I mean, if you went to the coach and said, Coach, I don't need two-a-days. Once is good enough for me. I guarantee you won't find much playing time. Now, that's not in any way a threat to the congregation. It's just simply the acknowledgement. I need as much spiritual instruction as I can get. There's a natural tendency, a way, and it's especially the office bearers who need to be on guard to preserve true religion by keeping the Word of God central. And committees have their place, but you can have hundreds of committees and you can have thousands of brainstorming ideas that can really just cloud the simplicity to preserve true religion you need a consistent use of the spiritual means of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God along with the administration of the sacraments. No ideas ever dreamt up by anyone will be able to supplement or replace the power of the Word of God. And so the first goal is that true religion might be preserved both among ourselves but also then for future generations. And when you think of the children and the young people of the church, the most valuable thing we can ever give them, of course, in dependency upon the Spirit's work, is true religion. And, and, and now I know to a certain extent the, the pressures upon parents to provide everything that your child needs everything that your child thinks they need, just know those are two different things, everything that perhaps society says your child needs. But the most important thing our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren need, true religion, the knowledge of God, the saving knowledge of God, faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ. Uh, not only preservation, not just a circling of the wagons, but also as true religion is preserved, then the spread of true doctrine. So we look internally, but not exclusively internally, preserving true religion, understanding something uh, of its worth and of its necessity. They're also then, especially by the office bearers, but by the entire congregation must be this desire to bring that gospel to the nations. Last night, 
uh, around the dinner table, not, not to exalt anything of our own family, but uh, as we read Scripture, Psalm 67, I believe. No, you have to fact check me. But there, there's this desire that the nations might come to know our God. Do we desire the nations to know our God? That many might come to worship our God. If we do, then we have to engage in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I know that this is a complex issue and it could be discussed and debated But the church, the militant church here on earth, our task, our goal is not to solve all of humanity's problems. And when you read some of the broader assemblies uh, of other denominations, some of the things that they deal with, you think, why in the world are you dealing with that? I'm not weighing in on any side of the debate, but climate change, a broader assembly of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, spending time discussing how it can contribute to the ongoing discussion of climate change. Well, here's a novel idea. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ before the climate changes and the cosmic change that will occur when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Let us identify very clearly that which we are to be about, and then let us focus very diligently upon that which we are to be about as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially in light of the fact that the time, according to 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But that prophecy is offset, you might say, by the prophecy of Habakkuk 2 verse 14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And let us hold those two truths in proper tension, understanding that the night is coming in which no man works, but today it is still day. Today it is still the day of grace. Today there is still the opportunity for the church to labor on preaching and teaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.